Well, a couple weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago now, we started to talk about this picture. We started to talk about the fallout of David's sin, and we started to talk about the idea that David's sin and, and the the damage done by David's sin was not just the initial act, just like with a nuclear explosion, the damage done goes beyond just the initial uh, fireball that, that goes up from the explosion, that there's fallout afterwards, that there's a, a lasting uh, cloud that can, as it rains down, still do quite a lot of damage to uh, those that it's, it's being targeted at. And as we consider David's sin, and we started to talk about it uh, that week with uh, what was going on between the, the unfolding saga between Amnon and, and Tamar, and then you, had, uh, then you also had uh, Absalom going in there and, and murdering Amnon, and, and you had all of that beginning to unfold and unravel, and that, all of that was part of the, the consequences, the fallout of David's sin with Bathsheba. And then even last week in chapter 14 in the quasi-reconciliation that exists between Absalom and David, which we'll see was quite tenuous at best because of what happens in chapter 15, that all of these things we can't remove from what took place in 2 Samuel chapter 11. That all of these things come back to as their initiating point, their birth point, 2 Samuel chapter 11, when it says that when the springtime came, and when kings went out to war, David stayed behind. That, that that set in motion, and then his lust, and then everything else that came after that, set in motion everything that now we're dealing with in chapter 13, and chapter 14, and chapter 15, and chapter 16, and chapter 17. That this is all part of God's sovereign plan as he unfolds the, the, the consequences for David's sin and David's rebellion. And so we looked at this concept of the fallout of David's sin, and it continues in 2 Samuel chapter 15, we pick up in verse 1, and let's just read through verse 6. It says, After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses, and fifty men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right. But there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand to take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel." Absalom, we already know this from his interaction with Amnon, was a shrewd and a cunning man. He had bided his time after the sin of Amnon against Absalom's sister. He had waited patiently for two whole years to the point that he was even able to convince David that his ire, his wrath against Amnon had subsided. He even was able to convince Amnon that it was safe for Amnon to go and attend this sheep shearing celebration with Absalom out in the, the, the wilderness area. And so we know that, that Absalom was, was a shrewd man, that he was an opportunist, that he was willing to, to, to do things and be patient, and he wasn't a, a, a stupid man. He was smart. He was intelligent. And we see that again here in the first six verses or so of 2 Samuel chapter 15. Absalom wanted something that wasn't his. He wanted the throne of his father David. And what he was looking at at this present time at the end of chapter 14 is he's looking at a situation where that position, that throne is no longer guaranteed to him. 
We don't know what happened to the second-born son of David, but he's out of the picture at this point. Amnon, the first-born son of David, clearly is now dead because of the the actions that Absalom took against him. And so in the back of Absalom's mind, he's thinking to himself, you know what, the throne is not necessarily going to be guaranteed to me, even though by the the lineage, by the, the birthright, he had the next right to the throne of David. But I think it went beyond that. I think Absalom wanted David's throne not when David died, not later, not sometime down the road. He wanted David's throne now, and he was willing to do what it took to get it. And so we see that Absalom begins to take things that aren't his in the first six, seven, eight verses of 2 Samuel chapter 15. First, we see in verse 1 that he takes power that's not his. It says that Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now, this is a strange move, but it wasn't a strange move for the kings of the foreign nations around Israel during this time. It was common for the Egyptians and for the Canaanites and for the Syrians and others to ride in their, their chariots as the royal figures, as the, the, the commanders of not just the army, but of the whole nation. And they, they would have their horses and they would be in the fine chariot. And then they would have these 50 men running in front of them as they went. And so Absalom is, is making a grab at, at power that wasn't his, but this is certainly a calculated move on his part. He knows what this is going to look like, not only to himself and not only to his followers, but to everyone else, including the nations around him. When they see Absalom parading around Israel with a chariot and 50 men in front of him, they're going to begin to think, okay, this is the guy. He's, he's the shot caller. He's the king. And so he's beginning to even undermine David's power, David's authority by gathering these things for himself. Later on in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5, another one of David's sons will do the same thing. Adonijah does the same thing in 1 Kings 1, 5. He gets his chariot and he gets 50 men because he's making a play for the throne. He's making a play for a role that wasn't his, but he's trying to assert power. And so Absalom first takes power that wasn't his. Second, we see in verses 2 through 6 that he, he takes a role that wasn't his to take. He begins to intercede. He begins to intervene. He begins to mediate for the people. As they're coming up to to deal with their their problems, which if you remember all the way back in Exodus, Moses was mediating for the people, and you had Jethro come to Moses and wisely tell Moses, look, you you can't do all of this. You need to appoint for yourself elders. You need to appoint for yourself judges who are going to be able to to mediate the the smaller cases so that you can focus on mediating the the larger cases. Well, from that point forward, it was the the ruler's job to mediate. It was the ruler's job to judge and, and hear these grievances. But what Absalom does is Absalom takes a role that's not his, and the way he does this is he goes out and he puts himself at the the entrance to the city gates before they would ever have a chance to even get to David. And as he does this, he begins to endear himself to the people. He's making small talk with them. He's calling out to them, saying, hey, where are you from? Why don't you come over here, talk to me for a minute? Where are you from? And and all of a sudden, they're going, wait a minute, I, I recognize this guy. This is the king's son, and he's taking an interest in where I'm from? And then he begins to continue to to talk to them and say, well, what brings you to the city? What what are you looking for in the palace today? They would bring forth their case that they want heard. And he would say, well, man, unfortunately, there's no one around to to hear it. The the king hasn't appointed a judge. But, you know, why don't you tell me what's going on? So he's infiltrating himself into the hearts of of the people of Israel. That's why it will say in verse 6 that he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. He's taking a role that's not his to take. 
He's informing their perceptions, creating their reality of what they understand. So he's causing the people of Israel to think that David doesn't care about them. Is that true? No, that's not true. But because he's positioned himself at the city gates and he's intercepting all the people that are coming, he has the ear of the people and is able to tell them whatever he wants to tell them. So he takes a role that's not his. Verse 3, he takes a shot also. He takes a shot at the reigning king. He says, look, there's nobody to hear your case. There's no, there's no judge that's been appointed. Now, was that the case? No, that wasn't the case. If they had gone to the palace, would David have heard their, their pleas and heard their case and judged them the way he should have judged them? Absolutely, he would have. But again, Absalom, being a shrewd and cunning man, is informing their perception, informing their understanding. And so he's attacking David, his father, the ruler, the current leader, and he's subverting his authority, which is often true of selfish ambition. It's going to attack leadership through these subtle attempts at undermining the character or the competency, usually both, of the person who's leading. And that's what Absalom's doing here with the people. He's undermining David to them. Verse 4, he takes a side angle. So he doesn't directly say, you know what? I should be king. He says, oh, that, that I were the judge in Israel. Even if, man, if, if my dad would just make me the judge in Israel, I don't even want to be king. He just needs to make me judge. Think of how, how much benefit I would be to you. Then you would have somebody dedicated to your needs. You would never have to wait in line to get in to hear the king anymore. I'd be your personal confidant. You could come talk to me whenever you needed me. You can see what he's doing here. So he's taking a side angle here, again, because he's a master manipulator in this situation. Verse 7, then, we read this. He says this, At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. And so the other thing that we see that Absalom takes in all this is he takes his time. He takes his time. And we saw that with Amnon, right? He took two years. He waited patiently for two years until just the right moment where he could strike and see that Amnon would be killed for what he had done to his sister. Now he's taking his time even up to the point of four years of meeting with people at the gates of the the city, interceding, informing their reality, stealing their hearts, endearing himself to them. He's taking his time. And then in verse seven through nine, as I just read part of it, he takes his place. He takes his place, his, his position, and that's in Hebron. After he says he's got this vow that he needs to go vow, which maybe he did, but his motives were still different than this. In verse nine, it says, David said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Now, why Hebron? Why would Absalom want to set up camp in Hebron? Well, Hebron was strategic for a few reasons. Number one, That's where David was initially inaugurated as king over Israel, at least over the southern kingdom of Israel. So there there was royal significance to the city of Hebron. Number two, though, it was also the birthplace of Absalom. This was his hometown. This was where he was introduced to the world, so to speak. So he's going back home. This is his location. He's, he's differentiating himself even more so from David saying, David's got Jerusalem. Okay, city of David over here, Hebron. This is where I'm going to set up my base camp away from him. And that's the third reason why it's significant, this location, is it's 20 miles away from David. So as Absalom is still putting things into place and getting his plan ready to to set in full motion, to go and to take the throne of his father, he wants some distance between him and David in case David should catch wind of this and this be 
crushed before he has the opportunity to really amass the, the forces that he wants. And so he takes his, his place in verses 7 through 9. And then finally in verses 10 and 11, he takes his people. He takes his people. Verse 10, it says this, But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. So Absalom goes and he sends these secret messengers out to, to, again, the people that he had already endeared himself, saying, hey, look, when you hear the trumpet, something big is going down, and what's going down is, I'm going to be the new king. And then he takes 200 people who it says were innocent and going with him. They didn't know why they were going to Hebron. They didn't know they were going to Hebron in order to uh, establish this, this coup against the reigning king of Israel. But who were these 200 people? We don't know specifically who they were, but it's likely that they were key players in the military, key players in David's administration, key players in, in the, the, the strategy side of things. So that when Absalom went to go and actually launch his attack, whether or not these 200 were going to be on his side or not, they were no longer with David. David didn't have access to them. And so David would have been crippled. Again, Absalom sees something and wants it that's not his to take. He wants the throne of his father. It's not his to take. May it have been his had David eventually lived and died and then the throne was vacated. There was still even no guarantee at that point because of Absalom's actions against his brother Amnon. And so Absalom sees something that's not his. He says, I have to have that. I need that. What do I need to do to get it? Do you see the parallels between Absalom and his brother Amnon? Absalom, who detested Amnon for what he had done to his sister, Amnon had seen his sister and said, I want her, I can't have her, but what do I need to do to, to, to make her mine anyways? And now you have Absalom looking at the throne of his father David saying, I want that, I can't have it, but what do I need to do to make it mine anyways? See, Absalom, again, was a shrewd opportunist and he was bent on gratifying his selfish ambition. And all of this leads to one of the lowest points in David's life. He's running for his life from his son, as we'll see momentarily here. But this is just, it's unbridled arrogance that's unleashing itself through Absalom's desire for the throne of his father, David. It's point number one for us this morning. It's this, we need to recognize the godlessness of prideful ambition. Recognize the godlessness of prideful ambition. Look at what, what Absalom does here. At any point in any of this, in the first 11 verses, do we see any reference to Absalom seeking God's will in this matter at all? None. None. In fact, what's even more telling is in all the people that Absalom recruited to go with them to Hebron, who did he leave behind? Zadok and Abiathar, the priests of God, as well as the Ark of the Covenant. So Absalom, in this ambition that he has for the throne of David, has no concern whatsoever for God or the will of God. He's written that off completely. He's ignored it. He's left it behind as something that's irrelevant excuse me, and, and trivial. He doesn't need the priest. He doesn't need the ark because he can take things into his own hands and accomplish his will no matter what. See, that's what prideful ambition does to us. It, it forces God out of the equation as we look at the decisions that we are trying to make. Prideful ambition says this. It says, I want what I can't have. I want what's out of reach. And I'm not going to be satisfied until I get it. Prideful ambition says, I, I need what the Lord hasn't given me. 
Yeah, I know he's given me a lot, but I, I want what he hasn't given me. Prideful ambition also says, I, I can do this better than that person can. It says, I can offer more than that person can. Their job should be my job. Their position should be my position. Prideful ambition says, I'm going to make this happen no matter what. Nothing can stop me. Prideful ambition says, I don't need to wait on God's timing. My timing will work just fine. And prideful ambition finally says, I'm right and everyone else is wrong. That's what Solomon would eventually write in Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. That's Absalom right here. There's no consideration of godly counsel. There's no consideration of the priest. There's no consideration of stepping back and and asking whether or not this is even God's will. There's no, none of that. It's just blind, prideful ambition that sees what he can't have and says, I have to have it no matter what, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to, to get it. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But the problem is not ambition. Ambition in and of itself is not a bad thing. We should all be men of ambition. We should have goals and desires and dreams and, and things that we're moving towards that we want to accomplish. But the difference is, rather than being pridefully ambitious, we need to be humbly ambitious. And so as we looked at what prideful ambition says, on the flip side of that, godly, humble ambition says this. It says, number one, if it's out of reach, it may not be God's will. If I want something that it seems like I can't make it mine, it's, it's out of my reach, it's beyond my reach, then maybe it's not God's will for my life. And I need to be content with that. Humble ambition also says, I'm going to be thankful for what God has already given me. Rather than focusing on the thing that I don't have and growing discontent and grumbling against the Lord for what I don't have, I'm going to choose to focus on what he has given me. I'm going to be thankful for what he has provided for me. Humble ambition also says, you know what? If somebody else has a role or a job or a position that I want, God may have them in that position because they're better qualified than I am. That there may be people out there better qualified or more capable than I am for what I'm wanting. And if that's the case, okay, so be it. Godly, humble ambition says, I want to just be used by God. If it's not God, according to my plan, whatever it may be, I just want to be used according to your plan. Just use me. I'm here. I'm available. It's, it's Isaiah's response after he sees the glory of the Lord. Who, who will go? Who shall I send? Here I am, God. I want to be used by you. Godly, humble ambition also says, I will submit to God's will and wait on his timing. I will submit to God's will and wait on his timing. And then finally, godly, humble ambition also says, if I'm alone in this, God may be telling me I'm wrong. If I'm alone in this, God may be telling me I'm wrong. There's been times where I've been wrestling with something exegetically, and I've gone in, and, and one time in particular, went in and sat down in Pastor Lucas's office, and I said, Pastor Lucas, I'm, I'm wrestling with this, and this is where I've, I'm feeling like I'm landing, but I'm going against some commentaries on this, and he took the commentator's side, because that's the wise side of things to do, 
but I still disagreed with him because I'm bullheaded sometimes. And uh, Pastor Mike happened to be walking by the office at that point. And so Pastor Lucas waved him on into the office. And so Pastor Mike came in and I ran in the scenario by Pastor Mike. And Pastor Mike looked at me and he goes, no, Pastor Lucas was right. So I found myself with, with two pastors, one of whom being our senior pastor, who I very much uh, respect his, his wisdom and guidance. And I sat there and I said, okay, fine, I'm wrong. I get it. Right? If, if, if your ambition, if everybody else is looking at what your goals are, your ambition, your drive, and you've put it out there, and they're all looking at you going, you know what, I don't think that's the wisest thing for you to do. And you're the only one on the side of saying, no, this is the right thing to do. You got to consider, at least for a moment, that chances are high that, that you're not the one that's right in that instance, that you're wrong. In fact, the flip side of Proverbs twelve fifteen, which starts out, the way of a fool is right in his eyes. It says the godly man or the wise man listens to counsel. There's wisdom in an abundance of counselors, right? We need to put that into practice and be willing to listen. But Absalom's prideful ambition was on full display. God was nowhere in this picture. He's the opposite of David when David was fleeing for, for his life from Saul. And David had so many opportunities to be ambitious in a prideful sense and ignore God and remove God from the equation and just take what he wanted. And yet he remained humble in those and patient in those instances. David's son Absalom is not doing that at all. And again, it's an, an indictment against Absalom, yes, but it's also an indictment against David. David's failed leadership as the father. When we pick up again in verse 12, it says this. It says, while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So he sends for Ahithophel, and this guy is going to be a major player in the text as, as the chapters continue to unfold. He's the, the, the military strategist. He's the, the, the mind behind David's administration. He's the, the go-to guy, right? And Absalom says, you know what, if I'm going to cripple my father, I need to have Ahithophel on my side. So he calls for Ahithophel, and Ahithophel goes to join him. Verse 13, then a messenger came to David and said, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. His plan, his, his, his cunning deceit, and his manipulation was paying off. It was working. The hearts of the people had gone after Absalom. Then David said to all of his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us, and quickly bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out, all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. So David takes stock of the situation after he hears what's going on, and he realizes he's outmanned, and he's outgunned. He, he's in trouble. And he knows, and he looks around, and he realizes if, if he stays there, and if he stays there with his people, he's a dead man, and so are all the rest of the people that he cares about and loves that are still around him. Absalom had the hearts of the people. Absalom had the military of the people, and Absalom had the momentum at this point. And so David leaves. He leaves Jerusalem. He leaves these 10 concubines behind a, I don't know, housekeep for the palace. I, I, whatever it may be there, they weren't going to put up a defense certainly against Absalom. And in verse 18, they're leaving. And in, and in 18 through 23, you've got this strange interaction a little bit here between David and a, a Philistine. It's this guy Ittite, the, the Gittite. The Gittite is, is a man from Gath, which was the 
main city of the, the territory of Philistia. And so during David's time there, this man had come to, to know who David was and wanted to follow after David and, and came to live in Jerusalem. So as David's getting ready to leave, this guy's with him. And David looks at him and he says, what are you doing? Go back, go back to Jerusalem. You don't need to run with me. You're, 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 Absalom's not going to do anything to you. Just go home. And the guy says, no, 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 I'm, I'm going with you. And then it says in, in verse 23, all the, the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And so this is humiliation and shame and mourning as David is leaving his city, the city of David. And the king crossed the brook Kidron and the, all the people passed on toward the wilderness. Verse 24, and Abiathar came up. Here's the priest, Abiathar, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set the Ark down until all the people had passed out of the city. So you think initially, man, this is a win for David now. Finally, something's breaking his way. Yeah, Absalom may have the, the people, the hearts of the people. He may have the military. He may have Ahithophel, but, but David's got the Ark and David's got the Levites. David's got the priest. And so David, man, David, all right, it's time to utilize this to your bow, power and, and, and benefit. But David doesn't do that. David sends them back to Jerusalem. David sends them back to the city of, of David, to the city of God, where he wanted them to, to go back because that's where they should be. And he gives this amazing statement as he's turning away the ark, the place where God's presence would dwell and the, the priest as well. He says this in verse 25. He says, then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. And so David parts from the ark and the priests. And the, the loneliness, we should feel just the, the compounding layer upon layer upon layer of the tragedy of what's unfolding. I mean, honestly, this is the lowest point of David's life. Even when he was on the run from Saul, even in 2 Samuel chapter 12 with Nathan having confronted him, even with the death of the child after Bathsheba, I still believe that this is the lowest point of David's life. The king is barefoot with his head covered in a symbol of mourning and shame and humiliation. Israel is weeping as he's leaving and ascending the Mount of Olives. And he's even turning away the priest and saying, look, if God's going to be gracious to me, he'll bring me back. But if not, then, then this is his will, and may he do to me whatever seems good to him. This is not prideful ambition from David. This is a humble confidence that the Lord was still on his throne, even if David wasn't. David understood this. Psalm 29.10, right? David wrote this. Psalm 29.10, David writes there, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. David knew that the throne that mattered was not the throne that he had vacated. David understood that the throne that mattered was the throne of God. He knew the promises of God, the promises that God had made to him through the Davidic covenant. But at the same time, David also understood the consequences of his sin that were unfolding before him. And he was at the intersection of both of those things at this point in time in his life. Having to trust in God's confidence and yet being in a circumstance that he didn't fully understand. And we've been there before ourselves, haven't we? Knowing that God is a God of mercy, that God is a God of grace, that God is sovereign, that God is providential, that God is, is faithful, that God loves us, that God provides for us. And yet at the same time, finding ourselves in situations that we can't make heads or tails of what's actually going on in our life. We've been where David's at. 
That's point number two for us this morning. It's this. We need to remember the throne that ultimately matters during those times. That's, that's what's crucial for us, to remember the throne that ultimately matters. Because it's during those times that we're keenly aware that you and I have been deposed from the throne of our own lives. That we're not in control. But that's a good thing. As believers, in fact, I would say it's a necessary thing. All of us have to be deposed from the throne of our own lives. Because God is the only true sovereign ruler. And he rules our lives and governs our lives far better than you and I could govern our own lives. His decisions are better. His wisdom is greater. His knowledge of what's to come is vastly superior because he's ordained all things according to his will. And so we have to remember that, that, that that's the throne that ultimately matters. Psalm 29, the, the throne that God sits on forever is the throne that ultimately matters. That throne will never be abandoned. He's always going to be in his place. Nothing that happens to us will catch him off guard or surprise him. But that's still going to leave us in some uncomfortable places in our lives. Places where, again, we're at that intersection of knowing the doctrine of God's sovereignty and providence and goodness and love, and yet at the same time, staring face to face with situations that we can't control. Maybe it's the loss of a job. The loss of a a loved one. Somebody passes away and you're left reeling from that. Maybe it's the, the diagnosis of cancer and realizing I can't control this. I can't fix this. I can't rid myself of this. Maybe it's tension in a marriage. Maybe for some it's not even tension anymore. It's just all out war within a marriage. And you feel like it's out of your control to be able to find any sort of reconciliation between you and your spouse. Maybe it's the eternal state of a loved one whether it's a child or a spouse, that you know every single day that passes that they don't repent and put their faith in Christ is one day closer to them standing before their creator without being reconciled to him first. And you're saying, that's out of my control. And I know that God is good. And I know that he's sovereign. And I know that he's loving. But yet, I I find myself here wanting to be able to control this, and I can't. As men, we, we love to fix things, don't we? It's what gets me in trouble with my wife the most. I, I, the, the times where you don't act like you guys have never been there before. <laughs> you, you, whatever it may be, and you sit there and you're listening and your mind is going, okay, how do I fix this? How do I, what do I need to do? How do we make this stop? And she's just looking at you going, I don't need you to fix anything. And you're like, yes, you do. You do need me to fix something, right? We, but we want to do that, whatever it is in life. We run up against an obstacle and a hurdle and our minds are going, how do I fix this? Well, there's going to be a lot of times that God leads us into positions where we can't fix it so that we're going to become increasingly dependent on him because he wants that from us. And that's one of the reasons why the trials in our lives can serve for his glory because the trials in our lives are going to drive us to our knees and say, God, I can't do this. But I know you still love me. I know you're still good. I know you're still sovereign over this. And so I will worship you. Job, naked I came from the womb, naked I will return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so what do we do? How do we cultivate this? How do we develop this understanding of the throne that really matters? First, make sure that you're trusting in God's timing and not trying to force the issue. 
trusting in his timing and not trying to force the issue. Well, does that mean I need to just sit back and wait for the, the golden invitation to come across to, to fix the problem? No, no, not necessarily. But again, you, you know what forcing the issue looks like. If you're going against the godly counsel of other people, if you're doing things that are going to cause you to compromise, you, you're forcing the issue at that point. Second, be open to the, a different future than the one that you had planned. I mean, you may be 50 years, 60 years into your life and God may throw a right turn in your life that you're not expecting. Be willing to, to go there. Again, why? Because he's the one that's on the throne and his sovereignty is better than your sovereignty. His plan is wiser than your plan. Third, pray. Pray for God to change your mind, to change your desires and to change your plans so that they're, that they're in line with him. Pray for him to change your mind, your desires, and your plans so that they're in line with his. And then fourth, again, I mentioned this a second ago, but listen for his leading through the voices of godly counselors. Listen for his leading through the voices of godly counselors. Again, the, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to counsel. Well, in verse 31, David hears that Ahithophel has gone to be with Absalom. And so David fires up this, uh, this spur-of-the-moment prayer, and he says this. He says, O oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So David sends up that prayer, and then we come to verse 32, and it says, While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. And so David sends up this prayer, and then now we see Hushai. Well, what do we know about Hushai? Well, we know what we find in this text from him. Number one, we know that he's loyal to David. He's with David. He could have been back in Jerusalem. He could have been with Absalom, but no, he's with David as David's on the run. And in fact, he's with David mourning with David. He's, his robe is torn. He's got dirt on his head. This is a, a symbol of his mourning. So he's loyal to David. The second thing we know is he's trustworthy. Because David's going to take Hushai and David's going to send Hushai to embed himself in Absalom's inner circle. And so David trusts this guy enough to say, okay, I, I'm confident that you're not going to double cross me. And so he knows that we know that he was trustworthy. Third, we know that Hushai was a man of, of cunning himself. Because he's going to go and he's going to try to outwit Absalom. He's going to try to endear himself to Absalom so much so that Absalom will trust his advice over Ahithophel's. And then finally, we know that he was a man with wisdom because he was able to get a seat at that table to begin with. I got to imagine that Hushai carried some weight with him. Otherwise, there's no way he would have ever even gotten close to Absalom to be able to defeat the council of Ahithophel. But here's where things get really difficult for us in this passage, in this text, in this chapter. Because here's the question that we have to answer. How should we understand the arrival of Hushai in the instructions given to him by David? How should we understand those things? On the one hand, we could say, this is a prompt answer to David's prayer in verse 31. God confound the counsel of Ahithophel. Amen. Open my eyes. Hey, here's Hushai. Hushai, I've got a job for you. So on the one hand, we could say, you know what? This is God providing Hushai as an answer to the counsel, to the, to the prayer of David, that he would be able to send Hushai, a guy who was uniquely qualified, to be able to go in and embed himself with Absalom and defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. Okay, we can see that. But on the other hand, 
We could also see that this is David taking things into his own hands. David sends up the prayer, opens his eyes, hears Hushai, and he thinks to himself, wait a minute, God, on second thought, I've got a different idea. Because David sees Hushai and he thinks to himself, well, maybe I don't have to wait on how God's going to answer this. Maybe I can figure this out myself. And he takes Hushai to the side and he sends Hushai back into uh, Jerusalem to endear himself to Absalom. But the way he's going to endear himself to Absalom is through lying and deceit, is it not? He says this in verse 34, but if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in times past, so now I will be your servant. That's a lie that David is instructing him. And so is this David taking things into his own hands? These are are two valid interpretations of this passage, and commentators fall on different sides of the equation on this. And it's hard, and there's, there's... it's hard to land on this because we could then go back and say, well, okay, but then on the flip side, we could say that this is part of the rules of war, right? So deception is allowed. It's permissible in this instance. And somebody asked yesterday, what's the difference between this and when David was feigning insanity with the Philistines? Wasn't that condemned as an example of not trusting God, but should we be okay with it here? Well, again, this is where we're going to say that this is under the guise of the the rules of war. And so just as God commanded Joshua to send spies into the land to spy out the promised land, which was a a deceptive act as well, that, that this is okay. It's permissible because it's under the rules of war. So even though that this involves deception and lying, we can be okay with it. But then, on the other hand, you've got lying and deception. And we know that God is what? God is a God of truth. God does not lie or change his mind, right? He's not a God of deception. Again, there's commentators on both sides of the equation. It's a difficult decision to make. And I can't stand up here and definitively say that it's one or the other, but I will tell you where I land. I land on the side of that, that this is David grabbing the reins away from God and doing things in his own power. That's where I fall. You disagree with me? I'm okay with that. We can still be brothers in Christ and we can still see what we're driving at here. Because here's the, the, the deal. We got to wrestle with what, what does this mean for us, Right? And I'm going to venture a guess is to say most of you in this room, I have to say most, because last night a guy came up to me afterwards and was like, well, I was a, a, a member of the defense Ashate in, in Morocco or something like that. He was a spy. But most of us in this room, I'm guessing, are not active spies in the United States government, right? So I'm not going to have to worry about you coming up to me and saying, hey, you know what? I know that I'm not supposed to be lying or deceiving, but I work for the United States government and they're going to send me undercover to be a spy, Right. Some of you may be police officers. Maybe you've done undercover jobs. And, and, and again, there's room for discussion there. But I want to talk about the general principle of you and I as we're going through our lives, okay? Disaster can strike at any moment. We've seen that. We can end up where David is. And that's where we need to be careful not to fall back into our own prideful ambition to try to get ourselves out of our circumstance. And that's how I read what David's doing. Our final point this morning is this. Fight the desire to substitute your means for God's power. Fight the desire to substitute your means for God's power. If you've ever prayed for the Lord to respond and to deliver you from a trial, and whatever the solution that you think is there presents itself, if that solution involves you compromising or sinning, it's not from God. God's not going to deliver you from your trial through you sinning against him. I think of the, the Marian martyrs. 
the Marian martyrs were English reformers who died under the reign of, of Bloody Mary, hence the, the name Marian martyrs. And these were men who believed and ultimately gave their lives to the idea that the scriptures were inerrant and authoritative and totally sufficient, that we didn't need the, the dogma and the doctrines of the Catholic Church any longer, that we needed to get back to the pure, unadulterated gospel that was revealed in the word of God. Mary didn't like that as a Catholic. And so these men were arrested and they were tried and they were burnt at the stake. But beforehand, they were given opportunity after opportunity to deny their teaching. And you can hear the rationalization, can't you? Okay, well, maybe this is God opening a door for me to deliver myself so that I can continue to do effective ministry for him. Or maybe this is God giving me a way to preserve myself because after all, I've got a young family at home and many of these men who died had young wives and young children. One of them in particular writes about going to the stake and seeing his child for the very first time because she had been born to him while he was in prison. And so the, the opportunities to rationalize and to say, well, I can, I'll, I'll just deny it, but I won't really mean it. And think of all the good I'll be able to do then. These men chose instead, they were saying, no, I'm not going to deny my God. I'm not going to be disobedient to my God. They chose the stake. They chose the flames. They chose death instead. In fact, one of them, who's the most well-known probably is, is Thomas Cramner. Thomas Cramner, who was the, one of the, the key players during this time, was called upon by Bloody Mary to recant his teaching. And initially he did. He wrote a letter denying his teaching and he signed it in order to spare his life. But then after that was so guilt-ridden that when he was brought before the, the, the trials and the tri tribunals there, the Catholic courts, to read this, this recantation publicly, he stood up and he denied his denial. He said in front of all of these, Mary thinks she's getting her day and Cramner stands up there and says, Mary, I've got another thing coming for you. And he preaches the gospel. Well, she's enraged. And so she takes Cramner and she takes him out to the stake and chains him to the stake right then and there. And she ignites the flames, not herself, her servants do. Anyway, she ignites the flames. So he's burning alive at the stake and he takes the hand that signed the document that denied his God and he thrusts it down in the fire first. And he says, this hand needs to go first because it denied my savior. See, that's a, a, a man who refused to substitute his means for God's power, even if it meant dying. We know that from another story right in the scripture, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, the three of them stood tall when everybody else hit the deck. They, they could have rationalized that. Well, we'll fall down, but we won't really worship. Nobody will know. And, and think about it. If, if we stand up and, and we get thrown in the, in the fire, Daniel's going to be all by himself and and we're not going to be any, any use to God dead. Again, you, you can hear the rationalization to compromise, to sin. But instead, they remain faithful in God, even to the point of looking at Nebuchadnezzar and saying, God, look, Nebuchadnezzar, you can throw me in that furnace. And if you do, God is able to deliver me from that fire. Not he will. He's able to deliver me from the fire, but he will deliver me from you. Because he understood that even if... if they killed them, that they were still going to be delivered from Nebuchadnezzar. They were still going to be delivered from Babylon. They would be in the presence of their Savior. We need to have more of that mindset when we go through the trials that we walk through in life, saying, above and beyond anything else, I want to be found faithful to God, obedient to God. A couple things here, and then we'll wrap. Before proceeding with a plan, ask if there's anything about that that you will eventually need to repent of. Is there anything about your plan 
that you're going to have to ask for forgiveness from the Lord. If you can answer yes to that, you need to answer no to your plan. Second, remind yourself of God's faithfulness to his people throughout history. Regularly rehearse his faithfulness to people like Rakshak and Benny, the Marian martyrs. Even to somebody like Elizabeth Elliot, right? His faithfulness to her, even as she lost her husband and so many dear friends, and yet the ministry that she was able to then carry on with that same people group after that. Third, remind yourself of the big picture and what really matters eternally. Zoom out, so to speak. Remind yourself of, okay, in a hundred years, is is this going to matter? In a hundred years, am I going to have any thought about this trial? David's the one who would later write, right? One day in the courts of God is better than a thousand elsewhere. One millisecond in God's presence is going to make the trial that you're going through right now fade away immediately. It doesn't make it easier to be where you are, but it, it motivates us to put one step, one foot in front of the other and keep, keep going right now. Again, if you find yourself being asked by your country to embed yourself as a spy during wartime or go on an under, undercover sting as a police officer, okay, we'll talk about that, all right? We'll, we'll deal with that. But for most of us in this room, on a daily basis, we need to understand that God's never going to choose to deliver us through sin. So when we pray for that deliverance, we must be willing to trust that he will provide the solution according to his timing and in accordance with his character. Adversity. David was encountering a lot of it. And again, it goes back to chapter 11. David's not a victim in this. These are the consequences of God's uh, wrath being unraveled in David's life for his sin, for his rebellion. The question is for us, how are we going to respond to adversity when we find ourselves in trials? We've seen quite the spectrum in this chapter from selfish ambition to self-reliance. And then finally, which is the answer that we should all land on, trust in the sovereign God who still sits on the only throne that ultimately matters. Let's pray together. God, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for this passage, this text. We're thankful for God being able to to understand, um, even in the midst of tragedy, to be able to learn from that and see what your will is for us. God, I pray that we would be men that are, are zealous for faithfulness that we'd be men that are zealous for holiness, that we would refuse to compromise, that we would refuse to rationalize or justify something that's a sinful action, Lord, but that we would say, no, the the better choice is always going to be to remain faithful to you and to, to put sin to death, to mortify sin, to radically amputate sin from our lives, God. So help us to be found as as men like that, to remember verses like, what Jesus told us when he said, why would you fear the person who all they can do to you is kill you? No, you should fear the God who can destroy both body and and soul and hell. Lord, give us such boldness to be able to live with that confidence here on a, a daily basis until you call us home or come back. Lord, may we be found faithful until that day. In Christ's name, amen.